Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome to Before the Lights podcast. Today, I am not only honored, but extremely excited to have our guest on the show. He has been in numerous radio shows, magazines, newspapers, was featured on 60 Minutes, the CBS Evening News, the CBS Early Show. He is also the author of the book, Making of Jack Falcone, which is an undercover FBI agent takes down a mafia family. He's a Cuban-American retired agent. He is regarded as one of the most successful undercover agents in FBI history. He's known for his role in penetrating the Gambino crime family in New York City. Please welcome to the show, Joaquin Jack Garcia. Jack, thank you so much for taking time and being on the show. Oh, thank you, Tommy. I really appreciate it. It's an honor and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yes, 26 years of service and over 100 undercover operations. First, I just want to start out and say thank you for your service, your time, and your efforts for uh, doing everything you did on the streets. Uh, thank you. You're welcome. I mean, uh, listen, it was a tough flight. Uh, I originally was going to leave after 20, then it was 25, then I was going for 30. But I said, you know what? Let me just go. It's time to move on. Let me pass the baton to others to work. But it was a great career. It was uh, the best job uh, you could ever imagine. And uh, it was an honor for me to uh, have been chosen as a special agent of the FBI. So uh, I love it. I encourage everyone out there that wants to work the greatest law enforcement agency in the world to, to apply for the FBI. We're going to back up just a little bit. You were born in Havana, Cuba. And if you right. would, just briefly kind of talk to my listeners about what it was like living in Cuba at that time. Well, I was uh, born in Cuba in 1952. Uh, I came from my family had money. My father was a high government official. My mother sang opera. Life was very good for us. And then, of course, 1959, Castro came to power. A lot of people at first supported him. Because he came in, let's make Cuba for the Cubans. Let's get rid of organized crime. Let's get rid of the mafia. Let's get rid of the corruption. But then soon after that, he started uh, allying himself with the Russians. And a lot of uh, civil rights violations were occurring and human rights violations. And people started seeing that it was changing. It was becoming a socialist, communist country. So the mass exodus left. I lived under communism for almost three years. I left in November of 1961. And while they, although I was nine years old at the time, I did attend one of the better schools called the Marist Brothers uh, in Havana. And I noticed the way the military came in and started uh, influencing and trying to influence not only the teaching of the students, but also it affecting the whole Catholic Church. Uh, a quick example was it was a hot summer day, uh, as Cuba normally is. And one day the uh, uh, priest came in, and of course the military guy who oversaw every classroom was uh, sitting there. And he said, look, kids, it's a hot day, right? Yeah, I know, but let's get through it. You know, this is going to be a fun class. When suddenly the, teacher, the uh, military guy got up and said, look, kids, I know it's hot, right? But let's do this. Let's close our eyes and pray to God that he would bring you ice cream. So you're a little kid, you know, seven, eight years old. You, you fold your hands together. You pray to God for ice cream. 
And he says, all right, pray really, really hard for ice cream from God. So I said, open your eyes. He goes, do you see any ice cream? There's no ice cream here. What's going on with your God? I got a good idea. Let's do the same thing and pray to Fidel and ask him for ice cream. So we all prayed for Fidel to bring his ice cream. And sure enough, there was a knocking on the door and another military soldier came in with ice cream to serve to all the kids. That was the indoctrination process. This is what they were trying to do, mold you. Soon after that, of course, my father had to leave. Actually, he left very early on because he was a government official with the help of the FBI attache in Cuba. And then we, two and a half half years later, my my father was able to raise enough money here in the States to fly us back. And that's when we came to America which was the greatest day of our life. Ended up in the Bronx, New York, and then in high school you attended Mount St. Michael Academy and played a little football there and ended up getting a scholarship to West Texas State. Jack, how'd you get into football? Some coach grab you? You want to get into it? Or who got you in there? Well, I, I was always a big kid, or as they say in, in mob parlance, I was a big mama Luke, you know? <laughs> so... I, I mean that I was a big kid, the coach came along and said, hey, you ever play football? Now, if you're Cuban, you play baseball. You know, what football? We don't even follow soccer, to tell you that. So I went out to the team, and sure enough, it was so embarrassing because I'm sitting on the bench, right? I'm sitting on the bench. They had to get a white helmet, specially made for my big head, right? <laughs> so here I am, this big mama loop, sitting on the bench while everybody's playing as a freshman, then as a sophomore. Then that, that summer into junior year, I, I was aligning myself with different kids who were into football. I was practicing all summer. Boom, I got to play, start, and then uh, that's how my football career uh, began. I played at the Mount St. Michael Academy, which we were Catholic High School Football League champs in the city. We had a, probably one of the better leagues in New York. And although my grades were bad, I went out to West Texas State uh, because of their uh, legendary coach, a man by the name of Joe Herbal. And from then on, they fired him. And I decided to leave. And I went to a junior college in New York. And from there, I went to the University of Richmond. And subsequently, I graduated in 1975. Uh, So I didn't get drafted. I didn't play ball. But I did start playing some semi-pro just so for the fun of it. And, uh, of course, for guys on the team that really uh, were looking to take it to the next level, I was looking more to uh, just have fun and uh, uh, at team concept, um, which was great. I, I was working at that time at, at a college, a junior college, a junior college called Union College, uh, as director of testing and counseling at one of the satellite campuses. Uh, and then from then, I landed a job in Union County Prosecutor's Office, and that was my first taste of law enforcement. It's something that I wanted to do, which I was so happy to have gotten in. And then, of course, I had my application in the FBI, and a year and a half later, they knocked on my door and say, you got yourself an appointment. Are you still interested? And that's how I began. I got into the FBI on May 4th, 1980. For our listeners, this is going to come back in in the story here. When you hear Jack talk about, you know, he's a big guy, he's 6'4", and 
Right around 300 pounds, we'll call it, Jack. How's that oh, sound? You're being, you're being <laughs> so generous. I haven't seen 300 since I was 12 years old. Okay, Tony? <laughs> Let's, uh, I'm more, keep going in the 400. I'm 400 and plenty. Okay, Let's just leave it at that. We'll leave know? it at that. <laughs> Sworn in in 1980. And if you would, Jack, would you go back and talk about first you applied and then you saw something, whether it was on a television or radio, that they were looking for somebody and you're like, hey, I fit that. But they weren't looking at your application because you didn't have U.S. citizenship. Well, that's exactly what happened. What happened was um, we went as a college football team to see a, a movie, which we usually did before the games, you know, and I saw Serpico. Now... Serpico, to me, it was my inspiration. Here is uh, this cool guy, Al Pacino, right? He's a hippie, long hair. He had a sheepdog, for crying out loud. He lived in New York's Greenwich Village. He drove around in a motorcycle, and he was working on the cover. I said, this is what I want. This is what I want to be. I want to get into law enforcement. So the minute I graduated, myself and another Cuban ball player, we went and we applied at the FBI, and we were all excited excited about it. Actually, we had one of our other players whose father was an FBI agent, but we didn't use them as a recommendation. We simply went and applied here from the FBI whatsoever. So I'm sitting home a couple of years later, and this is 75, right around 1976, 77, and I'm watching Univision. Uh, Univision is the Spanish network. Yeah. I don't know if people are familiar with it. And all of a sudden, I see this non-native Typical FBI-looking guy, you know, three-piece suit, and he's butchering the Spanish language, and he's saying, we are looking for Spanish speakers in the FBI. You need to be a college grad, what's blah, blah, and we're looking for you. There's openings, great, exciting career. So I said, well, wait a minute. You guys have my application. You've had it for now for over a year. Haven't heard peep from you guys. Now you're advertising for guys like me. So I pick up the phone the next morning and I call up and I say, well, you know, I already applied. What's the status of my application? The guy gets back to me and he says, listen, we looked up your record. The reason why you didn't hear from us, you're not even an American citizen. So I said, well, uh, American citizen, I consider myself an American citizen. This is the country. This is the country I've adopted and have adopted me. I, I, I don't know any other you know, with Castro, and this is where my new life is. And I went forward, and I applied for citizenship, and then finally, in 1976, the bicentennial year of our country, I went and I became an American citizen in Newark, New Jersey. Proudest moment ever. And then immediately I went back to the FBI and said, look, I'm now an American citizen, let's move forward. But of course, the process to get in the FBI was long, and especially those who were born in a country that was, of course, communist. So the fear of an infiltration by a spy or a mole existed. So I went through this long, arduous process, complete with uh, polygraph examinations to test my loyalty to the U.S. government. And then finally, and scrutiny, and rightfully so. I mean, I understand that. But, you know, the Cubans who were here in this country, we left, and we hate Castro more than you could imagine for what he's done to our country and our family. 
So finally, after all of that, I was approved to get into the FBI. And that's how uh, my career began. You worked some undercover successful cases against corrupt politicians in Atlantic City, corrupt police officers in the Hollywood Police Department in Florida, the Boston PD, San Juan, Puerto Rico, Broward County Sheriff's Department. And then through all this, you you, you paid your dues and they say, hey, we're, we're looking at this case and we think you might be somebody that could fit this role but you're a Cuban and we need you to be an Italian and start working maybe with organized crime. So they send you to mob school. Was this something that was already existed or did they make mob school just for you? Well, you know, I think they made it for me, but the story really goes is that, you know, once I get into the FBI, um, at the end I had 26 years of service. 24 of those was dedicated solely to work in undercover cases. I've done over 100 major undercover operations, and that doesn't even count the countless number of buy buttons. Now, the reason why I was working so much undercover is twofold. Number one, I spoke Spanish. Okay, that was uh, what that time we the FBI got into drugs in the early 80s, so of course we needed to address that problem. And number two, you know, the fact the way I, I grew up in the Bronx, I just didn't look like your typical FBI agent. You know, back at that time, the FBI really didn't mirror the demographics of our society. So here I come along, you know, uh, a guy from the Bronx, uh, learned from the streets. I mean, I grew up in the neighborhood where you either was uh, became a cop or you were chased by one. Uh, and, and so I, I had that edge over somebody who was from the Midwest, somebody who was uh, from the South. So I kind of fit right in. And because I spoke Spanish, I, I was a shoo-in. So most of my career involved in either working narcotics, where I posed as a money launderer, a drug dealer, a drug transporter, uh, every aspect of drug cases and investigations I've done with all the cartels, whether it's Colombian, Mexican, or South American cartels, then, of course, I've worked Asian organized crime, Russian organized crime, murder for hire. I worked white collar crime, political crime. So I started just solely um, working undercover. I didn't have any other cases. Usually when they have a, the FBI inspection staff comes in every couple of years, they want to look at your cases that you've done and reviewed. When it always got to my turn, the guy would say, you have no cases. So I said, no, I know I don't have any cases assigned to me. All, the, all I have is working undercover in all of these other cases. So those cases, although they weren't assigned to me, I was very deeply involved as part of being an undercover agent. But that was the little niche, Tommy, that I found. That was something that I like. In the FBI, we have great surveillance agents. We have great uh, agents who know how to make uh, work uh, Title III applications. We know guys who are great working as bomb experts, surveillance squad, on and on. This was the little niche, and I decided to run with it. And along the way, it was my adrenaline high. I loved working undercover. I loved being around that bad guy and seeing that bad guy's eye looking at me. And I see that he believes everything I'm telling him. <laughs> and when I posted that drink, and I raised it up in the air, and he would toast, I could 
see his hand shaking, but mine was dirty. It was it was something you can't really explain. It was kind of like an, a method actor that really gets into his role. Well, the difference between me and a method actor is they get multiple takes. We as undercovers get only one take. And if you screw that up, you're going to wind up in the back of a trunk. How long was mob school for you? And if you would explain to my listeners just how important it was, or I let me back up, how important the rubber band around broccoli is to what you did. Well, all right. On the mob school, what happened is I've never worked organized crime in the bureau. Like I said, my specialty was narcotics. So I didn't really understand that culture. Yes, I saw it growing up in New York City. I I get it. I've seen the movies like everybody else, right? But I didn't know the really, the dynamics, the working of it. What what was it about? So when the agent who was working the case, Nat Parisi, asked me to work the investigation as an undercover, he came to me saying, I think you can pass for an Italian. Now, keep in mind, I eat rice and beans, fried bananas, ropa vieja. I, I, I'm Cuban, you know? So I said to him, well, are you sure about that? You know, uh, I don't know really. I, I mean, I've grown up around Italians, but you want me to pose as an Italian? Because, yeah, I think you could do it. You're experienced enough. You've been around all kinds of people. Yes, you have played an Italian guy, but I played Italian guy to Asians, okay? I played Italian guy to Russians. What does that mean? They have the same perceived concept of what it is, you know? But what I have to learn in mob school is the way that uh, that criminal enterprise, that secret criminal society operated. See, unlike when you work narcotics and you pose as a drug dealer or a transporter, you're the boss. You don't need to explain or give explanation to the guy you're dealing with of where you've been, where you're going, who are you? Because all of a sudden I would turn around, you're asking me, what are you, a rat? What are you, working for a cop? There is none of that. There is none of that. You accept people on their face value. You accept based on the uh, introduction for the informant. What I learned in mob school is something that I took with me was that there is so much deference in um, work in organized crime. There is so much accountability uh, and reverence to work in organized crime. Now, what does that mean? That means that in organized crime, the way it works, you get put on record. So that means you are responsible to somebody who puts you on record, somebody who's a member of a crew in a family. You can't just take off on your own and show up and operate under the umbrella of organized crime without accountability and, most important, kicking money up. See, in organized crime, money only flows up. It never comes down. So your job as a, for a lack of a better word, as a working bee for the mob family is to make money for yourself while you operate under this umbrella of organized crime, but to kick money all the way up from that was soldier to a cap to the administration. So I had to learn uh, that what the bosses said, there is accountability with that at all times. I had to, like, where did I show up? I had to have my background 
my identity real tight. I couldn't afford any chances because I'll give you an example. When I created my background, or as we call it, the legend of what uh, your background really is, I had to make sure my I's were dotted and my T's were crossed. And by that I mean is I needed to make sure I had the proper paperwork, the properly backstopping. I'm like, where did this guy come from? Well, in my case, I was introduced by someone who was kind of uh, influential in the family. So that got me in the front door. Now, how did I get there? Where, where did I live? Where did I come from? And these are things that they check out. And it's fearful for them because they're aware that we're out to get them and their job is to avoid getting caught by us. So I, I took it even a step further where I went to a um, cemetery in Florida looking for a Mr. and Mrs. Falcone, which was my alias, Jack Falcone, um, that had passed away and were buried. Now, you ask yourself, why would I do that? Well, let's suppose I'm down there with the subject or another mob guy. And he says to me, we're having a good time. We're drinking. We're eating. We're partying. We're doing whatever. And he says to me, hey, Jackie boy, I know you came from Florida. Because that was my cover. I was supposed to be a kid raised in the Miami area. I had Italian. I was third generation Sicilian. I grew up around a lot of drug dealers. You know, that was my claim to fame at the time, who I was. I was a knock-around guy involved in drugs. So they would say, look, I know your parents died at an early age. Let's go uh, pay our respect to the cemetery, bring a little flower. Now, he could be saying that innocently, or he could be saying it because he suspects something. So I knew where to go and what cemetery and where to walk to the graveside of a Mr. and Mrs. Falcone that were buried at the, uh, there. And I would then put flowers there. And if I had to shed a tear, I would shed a tear. Unbelievable. Because this is what you have to do. You have to prepare yourself. There is always, I remember when I got asked to join the union, local 305, they gave me an actual paper for union members. Now, I don't know local, okay, I don't know that. They simply wanted us, the guys and the crew, to get in the union so we could reap benefits on medical, dental, eyeglasses. In fact, when I was in the mob union, I had better benefits than in the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> that is a true fact. So what, what, I filled out this application, and later on, the a captain who I was with, which was Craig De Palma, said to me, Jackie boy, I said, you know, when you filled out that application, we checked you out. Don't take it personal. It's just something that we have to do. I owe the Bureau for the great job that they did and keeping me alive for making sure that the identities that they provided to me were able to fool these guys. This is what they do. Other, other groups and organizations never would ever think of doing that. But the mob is all about, you know, accountability. It's all about where did this guy come from? What is he doing? Because they, they groom you because to get, made, which is the ultimate uh, thing um, of what you aspire to be if you are first on record with a family, is you have to be able to play by the rule, and that is money goes upward, okay? you got to be able to make money. You can't be a brokester. 
You can't be a guy without money rubbing two nickels together. What do they need you for? You know, you right. got to be a guy who has done time or a guy who's been in prison. He knows the consequence. He knows this is a criminal society. It's not, you know, uh, the lion. It's not the elk club. And also, you have to be capable of violence. Okay, once you meet that criteria, the most important criteria is that you are a money maker and you play by the rules. And again, those rules are kicking up. Everything has to go up if you feed the money. So what we did in my cover as an undercover infiltrating the mob, we created the illusion that I was out there. And I told them I was out there doing home invasion. I was out there with a crew of Marielle Boatlift Cubans that were robbing drug dealers. And how do we prove that? We would go to the FBI forfeiture vault that we had all of these uh, trinkets of watches, diamonds, fur coats, et cetera, et cetera, that we have seized from drug dealers or white-collar criminals or whomever. And then I would come back at these with the little treasures that I wanted him to have as a very cheap price that his crew could sell and make money because it's all about making money. So an example would be a Rolex President watch, 18 carats. I would sell it to him for about $4,000. That watch in a jewelry store is about maybe $19,000, $20,000. That watch used probably around twelve, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000. So, He's selling it out there to all of his friends or people that he knows and all the business like. He's probably selling for about 8500 So he's doubling his money. And he, what did he have to do? He didn't have to live. Now, he couldn't be making all that money. Not picking up to him. I had two ways of doing it. One, I give him merchandise that he could sell. Or two, it would be I give him an envelope. Once in a while, we give him an envelope. That's what they call tribute payment. You give them a little something, something to make them happy. You're showing them that you're kicking money up. But whatever I gave them, it was never enough. I give the guy $2,000. He's saying, oh, come on, Jackie boy. I'm a little hurt this week. And I say to myself, a little hurting this week. I said, I was out with you because I was his driver. I drove you all around town picking up envelopes. You had your coat jam-packed with money. And you're telling me you can't rub two nickels together? <laughs> because it's all about, with these guys, nothing is money. It's all the count. And it was so interesting working with this captain, Greg De Palma, Tommy, because he was a celebrity in the Bronx, Westchester area. At one time, Greg De Palma owned the Westchester Premier Theater, which was known as the Las Vegas of the East Coast. This is before the... Um, the Atlantic City even opened up. He had the likes of Frank Sinatra, played at least four to five times there. Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, Seth Midler, Diana Ross, Deanna Warwick. The list goes on and on and on. In fact, you can go on eBay and put Westchester the Premier Theater and see some of the programs of all the famous celebrities that were there. But that club belonged to the mob. That was a mafia club, and Greg De Palma ran it. Okay, so, of course, when we would go out to dinner, a lot of older people would come up to him like he was a celebrity 
as saying, oh, Greg, remember those days I went to this concert with Frank Sinatra? And I would be sitting there and I would be saying, run, run for the hills. What are you, crazy? You're hanging around. You want to compliment to hang around with this guy? And then I saw the wonder, the marvel of Greg De Palma. He would ask them what they did, ask him for a card. He would put that card in his pocket, and I see his brain working like overtime. Like, what can I get from this guy? How do I get my hands in his pocket? Because that's what the mob is all about. It's putting their hands in your pocket. And people would still glamorize this and build love these guys. And you see that us watching television, you see the attraction of it. But that's, they're all about making money regardless of anything. Yes, it and I'm is. Sorry for going off. Of no, tangent, Tommy. Th- no, no. This is this is great stuff. Well, you talked to so much about it, and and I'm going to kind of reiterate that as well. I think because of TV and movies and magazines and the glamorization of organized crime, people see it as a life and death and and killing, and it's mainly all about the money. Everything with the mob is about the money, and that goes back to what I kind of hinted on with you in the mob school. And that is why they take the bands off of the broccoli to wrap around their cash to put it in their pocket. It's one of the things that the organized crime members do. To, and it's a little thing that you probably didn't know. And I, I didn't know a lot of it until I started doing some more research that they use so you can make sure you're blending in. Jack, you were doing a lot of different identities at once. I mean, you were not only working the Gambino case, but you were working counterfeit case with i think it was the asians and you're working you know other things down in miami did you ever get mixed up with your identities (laughs) no uh no but let me just backtrack what you said about and and i have final point on the rubber band okay that was the sign of status when you went out okay you made sure you look like a million bucks right and when you went in your pocket you need to have a knot or a roll, a huge roll with that rubber band stretched to the max on it. That was the sign that you were making money, that you were an earner. You were a guy out there. You couldn't open up and whip out some couple of changes of $5. You ask me right now how much money I got in my pocket. I'd probably say around $7. But I was out there working as an undercover in the Gambino crime family. I had three, $4,000 in cash. Unbelievable. And that's what it was all about. So that long with that, they don't use wallets. They use this knot. And the bigger the knot, the better you were. The more like influential, like, hey, this guy, uh, Tommy's doing pretty good here. You know, hey, Tommy, God bless. Hey, you know, John Don, salute. Salute, you know, because that that's what it's, it's all about. Now, regarding the other cases, it wasn't done by design. What had happened was, over the years since I worked on the cover cases, the great agent, the men and women in the FBI that I have the, the honor of having worked with them and for them as an undercover, they said they needed an undercover. Because keep in mind, undercover work is really an investigative scenario. Technique, I'm sorry, it's an investigative technique. It's one where, uh, you know, the reason why there's so much of it now it's, again, because we're more diverse in the FBI and because we see that it works 
and it's done more. Uh, so I'm working a case. I need you as a cameo. I got these dirty cops in Hollywood. They're, they're, they're uh, taking payoffs. They're trying to rob this thing. Do you mind if you come in and just do a couple of cases? Now, I said, all right, no problem. So I go and do the case. And then as I get in, we realize that it's bigger than we thought. So now I'm in in this thing. And this thing is taking a life on its own. So what I used to do is I would tap in some of the great undercover agents that the Bureau has to come and help me and be part of my crew. And when I posed as a mob guy, Hollywood cop, I, what I was learning from mob school and what I learned from my association with Greg De Palma, the Palma, the Gambino captain, I applied on this particular case. So I brought in these guys that were just amazing uh, undercover agents as my crew. And then I would, not the daily run of it, I would go like every month or maybe twice a month, I would go because they were handling for me. I was the boss. They were handling for me. What I would do when I was working other cases, I figure two a month here, two a month there, three a month here. As I'm bouncing around, I would not lie to Greg De Palma for accountability. I would tell him, look, I got something going down in Miami. I said, we got something good. Of course, he was excited because when I said, I got something down in Miami, something's good. What is he thinking? Okay, good. I'm going to get an envelope or <laughs> I'm going to get something. So, yeah, okay, Jackie boy, you go. All right. And then I would say, uh, after I come home, I would either say, look, man, it didn't work out. That's all right, Jackie boy. Hey, you got to keep trying. You know how things happen. Okay, uh, I'm going to Atlantic City. At that time, I was working the politician's and the Asian organized crime case that I was working. So what do I do is I go back. Sure, maybe that time I come back, hand them an envelope. Or we go buy some plasma TVs at P.T. Richards and sell them like they fell off the back of a truck. So these are things that we had to do in order to exist. Now, it got to the point that the big word in the FBI is you couldn't co-mingle investigation. And I get that. But it wasn't my intention to take on all these cases. They just gradually grew. Now, once I was embedded, I was, of course, trying to bring people in. And then I became such an integral part that I had to show up for anything of significance. But it took a toll on me. There was a lot of traveling to and from, getting on an airplane, going all the way down to Miami, shooting back up to Atlantic City. Atlantic City, I got to go to New York. I got to go here. I got to go there. I mean, that's a lot of time consuming. Undercover agents are not in the business of doing that. They're not working where they usually concentrate on one investigation and, and, and one investigation only. So that took a lot of me. And in hindsight, I would never do again, nor I would encourage anyone to do. So uh, that's how all of these cases began. And I also the type of guy that my personalities, I can't say no. Tommy, if you're my friend, you're my friend. And if you ask me, Jack, I need you on this case. You're the guy to do this. What am I going to say? No. Sometimes we even didn't tell the Bureau. We didn't want to come back. Cause what would they look at it? They would say, you can't come mingle cases. Uh, this guy is spread too thin. I actually heard that once. Me. 
spread too thin. (laughs) (laughs) You know, from his mouth to God's ears. Right. So uh, it was one of those things that, yeah, I might have been spread too thin and doing it. So what they would do is they'll say, no, he maybe used telephonic contact. So I, I, I was doing this and every minute of it in hindsight, I look back and say, what am I nuts? But I loved it. At that time, it was I was like an adrenaline junket, junkie. I was loving it. I loved that. I loved the, uh, sure, it took a toll. I was exhausted. I was drinking Cuban espresso coffee that's coming out of my ears. So it, it was all the time being up. I was recording this guy going here, wearing everything. And I always wore a recorder. Because I'm a believer that the words, when you record something, it's indefensible. You know, it's the best evidence you could possibly get is the criminal defendant's own words. If you got a, a mobster, a drug dealer, a dirty cop, and he tells you on tape, I'm a dirty cop, I'm a drug dealer, and I'm a mobster, and I do member of the Gambino crime family, and I killed this guy or I robbed this, come on, does it come any better than that? How are you going to defend that? Nowadays, what happens to all law enforcement officers? You go on the stand, they destroy you. They come after you. They try to somehow, you know, destroy your credibility. But when you got that tape, hey, you know what? There it is. Your guy said this. And this is the how he said it and why he said it. Exactly. So I believe in recording it. And yes, is recording dangerous? Absolutely. I could be wearing a recording device that's the size of, uh, of a fingernail okay, or whatever uh, size you want to make it, and it feels like you've got a boombox, you know, like Flavor Flav wearing it. <laughs> the clock hanging around <laughs> your neck. A clock hanging around <laughs> my neck. That's what it's going to look like, Flavor Flav, you know, and, and that's the feeling that you have. But I wanted to do it, and luckily no one in my career, my over 100 cases and over many, many dope cases that I did, by bus cases, no one ever patted me down. I guess my size is probably it. And also, as every time I did one case, I learned my mistakes. I got better and better and better. So it went on kind of an automatic pilot. I knew how to read the tea leaves. I knew how what the body language was telling me. I knew where I could go. Could I go in this far? Could I push the envelope this far? Could I peel that onion with this guy? Now I back over. I knew their eyes, their face. I looked around. I knew the environment. I controlled the environment. I wasn't a death turf. I'm not going into the basement of some freaking tenement. Hell no, I'm not going to do that. You want to do business with Jack Falcone? You do business with Jack Falcone over dinner. Right. You know, you control the setting. You prevent this from happening to you. There is no case. There is no drug deal. There is nothing that would... You should... Put yourself in that you're not gonna you're not gonna be here the next day. You control the setting. That's the way I, I felt and I've worked on the baddest hombres ever. But I am not going to play that little game with them. I'm gonna control the set the set. Because I'm the guy, by the way, who's got the money. You wanna do business with me? We're playing by my rules. I'm not kissing your ass. What should I do that for? And I play it off. I get in their face. And you know what? They're, they, they're desperate. And if they walk away, my philosophy was, well, that's why God invented tomorrow. 
We'll deal with it tomorrow. We'll get somebody else to get his ass. You did such a good job on the Gambino case. It ended up with, you know, I don't know, 32, 39 mob guys arrested, convicted, which has included some of the top members of the family, including Greg De Palma. And I do not want our listeners to think that, you know, Greg De Palma was this uh, nice guy. He was a, he was a, he was not a good guy. He was an evil man. You know, he once used a power tool to someone's head. He, he was that type of guy our guest was dealing with today. And he was older when all this started. He was in his 70s when you first got in touch with him. The word on the street, so to speak, Jack, was that he was kind of washed up and not really a member doing much with the mob. Was that correct? Well, what it, more than that, what happened was he was arrested on the Scorth case, him and his son were arrested along with John Gotti Jr. They were shaking down scores. And then while he was in prison, this guy actually took a murder contract on another soldier in the Gambino crime family, who, by the way, he proposed for membership. Okay? And the reason for that is because this guy was not picking up tribute payments from all the people that Greg had under his protection. So that angered him. Unfortunately, Greg De Palma took a contract on it through a guy who was in prison, this Dominican drug trafficker, who wanted some leniency in his prison uh, time, and he was an informant for ATF. So the guy was introduced, Greg De Palma was introduced to another undercover where he's telling you to whack this guy. And what does Greg De Palma do? He does what John Gotti always did, and that is you never take a plea. You go, no matter what they have on you, you go to court. And Greg De Palma, while in prison, went to court on this murder for hire case, and he beat it. So when he comes out of prison, Tommy, what happened was he was damaged good because we thought that there was a contract on him by the guy that he took the contract out of uh, in prison for, and the Gambino crime family had enough, and they were going to whack him. So I didn't attach my wagon to him. The genesis of the case was because some other mob guys were working in cahoots with Albanians and shaking down strip clubs. So, And I highlight that all in the book, that... What happened was the Albanians came in, they were shaking down the club, and then it was all big fight happens before I got in. Big fight, gunshots going off, and then the next day this Polish um, mob captain walks in and he says, I heard you had a problem, and we could make that problem go away. But now you've got to pay us $5,000 a week. So it, what they did is it was a textbook mob extortion where they created a problem which was the albanians and they offered a solution which was the solution the albanians wanted so they bought me in and i paid off the five thousand dollars that was the beginning of the investigation and i was attaching my wagon to that mobster and then greg De palma comes out and he goes back to the strip club and said this is my club so what surveillance did, what they saw was Greg the Palmer was meeting with the right people. He was meeting with the bosses. He was meeting with other captains. 
So we didn't want to attach ourselves to him because of the murder contract. Then finally, we realized that the bosses told Greg De Palma that, hey, you've got to kiss and make up with this guy. No more of this nonsense. We're about the business and that's it. So it ended right there. So yes, Greg De Palma was not only a damaged good, he was the guy with a with a bullseye on his back. But we then figured this out, and it was like a chess game that they the case agents worked. They did a fabulous job, and boom, I concentrated on solely working from him. Now, Greg De Palma's claim to fame, besides the Westchester the Premier Theater that we talked about, was that he had a gift of talking. I mean, he actually talked more than I did, if you can find that, right? <laughs> this guy had a gift of gift, which was great for us because I let him talk and he re- I recorded all that conversation. So he was the goose that laid the golden egg for the FBI. So we did hatch, we, we hitched our wagon to him because of his blabbermouth as opposed to the other captain, who, by the way, we got anyway because I paid them the 5000 so we hitched our wagon, and then he just opened the gate. He got his title back because two weeks later, that same first captain came back and said, who originally had said, Greg is washed up, he's done. He came back and said, Greg got his strike. That means he's got the two bars. That means he's got he's a captain again. He got his bars back. Now you decide, you want to be with him or you want to be with me? We went with Greg because he loved to talk and we love to listen. And so do the recordings love to listen. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, you know what I mean? It was kind of like, you know, he was a gift set from us. But yes, Greg was old school kind of guy. I mean, he was a guy, like I said, made millions of dollars in that Westchester Premier Theater. He robbed, he was always, and he played by the rules. You know, I told you before about money kicking up. Greg went that extra yard. Let's say if he's got $50,000 on a scam, some guys usually give 10%, 15%. Greg give 50%. He knows that the more you grease, the more valuable he became. He knows that all of that money, all of that going up, it may help him the day he steps on his crank. Because they're going to say, oh, Greg's a good guy. You know, he does the right thing. We'll maybe cut him a break. Throughout the entire investigation, it eventually evolves to the point to where he proposes you to get your button or to become a made man. And then the case did get shut down before that happened. Hypothetically, Jack, what would that have done for the FBI had they allowed you to go through and actually become a made man in the Gambino family? Tommy, this is one of the things that really have bothered me, and not just me, the the former assistant United States attorney who prosecuted the case, some of the um, case agents involved in the case, that we thought that the FBI was very short-sighted in ending this case, okay? Because, and I said this to them, and it's in my book, and I showed my displeasure in my book, I, I, I felt that if I was going to go through and getting myself straightened out, that was going to open up what that world looks like, okay? 
And by that, I mean, in, in the mob, there is a thing. I'll give you an example. Let's say, Tommy, you and me, and a guy will say Joey Bag of Donuts, okay? Okay. Now, Joey Bag of Donuts, you know and I know, belong, let's say, to the Lucchese crime family, right? I can't go to Joey Bag of Donuts and say, hey, I'm Jack Falcone from the Gambinos. How you doing, brother? How's everything? Okay? It doesn't work that way. You need a third person who knows both of us, knows Joey Bag of Donuts and Jack Falcone, and make an introduction. That would be you. You come up and you say to both him and I, he says, Joey, I said, I want you to meet Jack Falcone. He's a friend of ours. That tells everybody that I'm a made man, that you could talk freely about the inner workings of organized crime. And by inner workings, I'm talking about who are the family captains, who are the bosses, what companies, where are you shaking who down, where are you getting the money from, where's your loan shark? That's what that means. But if I said to you, if you came up to me and said, because I may need to talk to somebody in another family and said, hey, Joey, I want you to meet Jack. He's a friend of mine. That tells Joey that I'm not a straight out. I'm not straightened out, that I'm just a friend of yours. I'm a guy who could be an associate. I'm a guy who's somehow connected. But in other words, don't tell this guy the secrets of what's happening in our world. So I wanted to be a friend of ours. Because I wanted to get everything, find out what companies are on record, what construction companies, who's being shaken down, where is their money coming from, the dirty local unions, who are the dirty cops and politicians. I wanted to be part of that. And not only that, I wanted to be able to bring some of these great undercovers that I have worked with over the years has come in as part of guys like for instance let's say we got somebody a family in philadelphia and i had a guy in philadelphia okay and i say hey greg we create something i got a situation with a guy in philly he's having a little bit he says, you know anybody yeah i'll get somebody and then all of a sudden now we have a meeting with the philadelphia family boom i put that guy in there he's now doing what he has to do then i may have something in scranton or i may have something in kansas city all of this it's what we would allow. So as opposed to getting the nine, okay, think of what those would be. And think of the damage that you could do. You Listen, this was done once before by Donnie Brasco. Right. That was in 1981. And he had six years to do this. Fast forward to me, 2005, and I'm two and a half years. So all I said is, give me the same time you gave Joe. You know, I, I'm right there at the cusp. I would have been straightened out had it not been for Joe Messina, who cooperated and they knew that. So everything froze. So you wait another couple of months, six months or whatever. Let's keep going with that. I'm always been, I have been taught by the greatest case agents in the FBI and some good undercovers that when you work, you climb that ladder. You keep going up, up, up until you got no more to go. This, I felt, we were in about the third rung. Man, you got we missed out. You were so close, so close. It, it, it really, it really was very. Uh, I, I and like I said, I, I 
you know, told about how, you know, how wrong of a decision it was, how short-sighted it was. But, hey, you know what? You got to move on. You can't talk about the what is. I, I just look at it as, yes, we did take down the administration. We took down the acting boards, the underboards. We took down numerous captains, not only with the Gambino crime family. We took down some Genovese captains as well as uh, Lucchese. We did that, but we could have done so more. You know, and, and you can't duplicate it. And all I hope is that in my lifetime that somebody at least does this. And for what it does, it's the perfect storm. You not only need to have a good undercover, you need to have a good case agent who subscribes to the same goals and take it the next further, a supervisor and the management who also are in for the same thing. Not something like, hey, let's take it down. Let me get up there in the front and uh, in front of the cameras at the press conference and see what kind of other job I can get, promoted or outside. We're not in this for the glory. We're in this because we want to put the bad guys in jail. And that's what we felt we did. And that you did. And when the case got closed, eventually, as you said, Mr. DePalma decided to take it to court and you had to testify against him. What were the feelings like from being, hey, Jackie boy, to... Now nah, I'm going to look him in the eyes and I'm going to put him away for good. <laughs> well, anyway, you know, there's a thing called the mafia flu, Tommy, and you know what that is. If you always notice when mobsters get arrested, they come out in wheelchairs, yeah. you know, walkers. <laughs> they got the mask on their face. They got everything. I mean, they look like the dead. You know what I mean? But just the day before that, they're out there hustling, moving around like it's nothing happened. Well, sure enough, we go to trial. And I'm playing all the tapes, you know, that we made over and over again. We're all the admissions. And Greg De Palma is in the courtroom. Now, picture this. He's inside sitting with a little blanket in a wheelchair with a face oxygen. He's unshaving, right? And he's got two attendants. So the last tape we play is when Greg De Palma goes off on a tirade how F this guy and this jerk off and how he fooled them last time he was sentenced on the score case because he had his sentencing while he was on a gurney. And he's saying things to the effect of, I was wearing a mask. I even was unshaven and drooling those asshole thoughts that I was done. <laughs> what a bunch of losers. Yeah, I fooled the bastards, you know? Now, I'm there playing that case, <laughs> you know? And Greg the Bomb is sitting there. He's got a little Oreo cookies in front of him, you know? And that ends the, the thing. He goes, any further questions? He says, no. So I exit the, uh, uh, the, where, where I was testifying from. I exit, come by. I have to walk in front of him. As I'm walking right in front of him, Greg, whose head is kind of down, he looks up a little and he says, you cocksucker. <laughs> and, and, and I walked by with a smile on my face that the judge even heard it and he had something to say about it. But it was like all of a sudden, you know, and listen, was a Greg sick man? He had three quarters of a lung, okay? But the man smoked nonstop. He would take cigarettes, rip off the filter, and smoke them. He had more energy than I did. 
He pursued money, never gave any appearances that he was ill, but of course, during this time, he was. Now, soon after that, we found out that he said, oh, they fooled me. The guy was nothing but a stick. He wasn't even one of us, God damn it. And he was playing himself the role. But I commend Greg De Palma as much as I hated him. I commend him because he was a worthwhile adversary. He's one of these guys who, like we see in the mob movies, who didn't rat anybody. I, don't, I also didn't see him as the guy who took a plea so he can get out. He had, we had, out of all the guys that we locked up, all of them pled. Greg De Palma was the only one, and we had the most evidence against him. Because that's what even John Gotti said, that if he was caught robbing a church and he had a steeple sticking out of his ass, he would still say he didn't do it. The mob way. You don't do that. You don't. Greg De Palma did it. He subsequently he passed away a couple of years ago, and um, you know, last things that I heard while he was in prison, he was uh, you know getting over and uh, doing things. And the guy was uh, a mover and a shaker. Had a big mouth, but again, we love big mouths. Put a link, and you need to read Jack's book. It is fantastic. I've read it, and it's the reason I reached out to Jack. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's The Making of Jack Falcone, an undercover FBI agent takes down a mafia family. You can get the entire inside story to this. You can find it on Amazon if you don't want to go to the link and just want to use those magic fingers on your phone. Go to Amazon, which everybody has the app, and type that in. You can uh, purchase the book right there and get it sent to you. Jack, now that um, you're retired and done with all the undercover world, what's life like these days for you? Boring as hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, right now, I'm volunteering with a rescue, an animal rescue group called the Guardians of Angel, of uh, Guardians of Rescue. I'm sorry, uh, and uh, mostly I spend time with my family, and uh, you know, um, bored out of my head. I mean, really, I went from going 120 miles an hour to to now I'm in neutral. You know, so. I miss the job. I miss the people. I miss the action, you know, but hey, it is what it is. Maybe uh, um, something will be around the the, uh, the end. I do work occasionally for a friend of mine who is a retired agent as a PI firm. Uh, that's not me. You know, I mean, I told him, I said, I hope you were recruiting. It's pretty good agency, but I can't see myself. I mean, think about this. I, I was driving a Gambino uh, crime captain around. I was before that. I've been working with cartel leaders and dirty cops, dirty politicians. And now, uh, you know, what am I supposed to do? Follow somebody who's having a bad marriage and see if I catch the wife or husband cheating? Come on. I mean, uh, there's no adrenaline on that. Right. So it, it, it's tough to adjust. And, and you know, it, it is tough. And, and I even said that after I retired. You know, I drove Greg the Palm around, which was nonstop, early in the morning to late at night, right? And here we are in the car. He's telling me stories. He's complaining. He's asking. He's doing it. Then I retired from the bureau. I start driving my daughter, who at that time was like six years old. And I tell you, I drove her all around in school. I, there was really no difference. You know, 
kids want everything. Well, so does the captain of the Gambito crime family, you know? <laughs> so it, it, it's been a while adjustment, uh, but hey, you know what? I, I'm, I'm glad what I did. I, I love having worked in the FBI and I met some wonderful people. And, uh, I, and I do appreciate the opportunity to tell my story on your show, Tommy. And uh, I wish you the best of luck too, my friend. Thank you very much. And I can't thank you enough for being on the show. All our Patreon members, make sure that you get to the extra five. There's going to be five more minutes of this interview there. And if you would, please go and rate and review the show. Go to Apple, click on five stars. Nice comments are always appreciated. For show notes, go to our website, BeforeTheLightsPod.com and click on episodes. You can get show notes there. Follow us on Instagram at BeforeTheLightsPodcast. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. Until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin.